Hello and welcome to the Transforming Society podcast from Bristol University Press. My name's George Miller, and I'm the editor of a new paperback series that BUP has launched this spring. Over the next few years, What Is It For? will explore the purpose of a range of institutions, beliefs, ideologies, and other phenomena that make up the contemporary world, from veganism to AI, nuclear weapons to the monarchy. Inherent in the series concept is the idea that the answer to the question will probably be complex and up for debate, but that it's worth asking in order to think about how the future could be better. The series launched with three titles, War, Cybersecurity and Philanthropy. And this is my second conversation with Jack MacDonald, who's a senior lecturer in the Department of War Studies, King's College London, and the author of What is War For? When Russia invaded Ukraine in February 2022, Vladimir Putin very deliberately referred to it as a special military operation, not an act of war. He's far from unique in refusing to call a war by its name. Calling something a war has consequences. And over the course of history, very different types of conflict have had the label applied to them or denied them. I began this conversation by asking Jack why what counts as war is a question worth asking. One of the things that's great about where I work is I work with people who have like all sorts of different academic backgrounds and they come at the idea or approach the idea of war in sort of like very particular ways. And so if, say, you're a political scientist, like one of your kind of key tools or methods is to create data sets. So you've got to sort of say, this counts as this or this doesn't count as this. And you create these data sets and you can see these, you find these out in the world. So like data sets about war and armed conflict, where they're, they're doing this thing like, OK, we have to judge whether this thing is a war or not. If you are, say, a historian, depending upon the period you're working in, uh, the criteria and the way in which people in those societies, you know, might be in the West, might be in Asia or Africa or things like that, kind of count something as what we would call a war has fluctuated over time. You know, similarly, like uh, my colleagues who work in international law, there's kind of precise criteria in international law for what counts as like an armed conflict or a non-international armed conflict. And so it's really kind of like navigating between these, which is why I'm so interested in this idea of what counts and what's not. Um, Because it is something that we can observe has changed over time. But at the same time, in the present day, there's a relatively stable set of criteria, at least in like international law and for like the political scientists. And what is, I think, very interesting about it over time is you can see it as kind of the centralization of power in states is the idea that like states think they're the ones who get to say what is a war and armed conflict or what isn't. And, you know, the, the idea that perhaps what we might call states kind of going back like a thousand years or something were actually distributed power structures in which barons might have the right to wage war on their own behalf. Similarly, the idea of what counts as internal or external to a state has changed over time. And the idea that, um, you know, one of the the kind of like quite interesting things I think in the book is looking at this idea of internal conflict, of why states have typically seek to discount the fact that people are resisting them inside their own territory. They don't want to give these people legitimacy 
rebels' legitimacy, saying like you're perhaps we're in a war with you, and there might be some kind of parity between us. So that's kind of why I think the um, the difference in counting matters, but also why the book itself has quite a bit about kind of how wars are counted as existing or not existing, and why that matters in the present day. And you you said um, a moment ago that it had become clearer because of things like international law. And I wondered, is the key institution in in bringing that clarity, is that the United Nations? Is that what has sort of driven this, you know, greater clarity than in, than in the past? We say things are clearer today. If you talk to international lawyers, <laughs> they'll probably say, like, hold your horses. Not necessarily as clear. There, there's lots of arguments at the fringes and margins, things like that. Um Modern international law, like post the United Nations system, like obviously it inherits the international law that kind of came before, but it's created this kind of like global standardized system in which all the states, particularly in the decolonization phase, when states freed themselves from imperial domination, they would join the United Nations, sign up to all these treaties and so on and so forth. The idea that suddenly the entire international system has almost like a couple of stable categories, even if they disagree as to what counts or what doesn't count, but like the language we use to describe them is relatively standardised. I think that's very interesting. Um, I think it's, historically speaking, almost unique. The idea that the entire globe has the same set of ideas about what is an armed conflict, what's what's not an armed conflict, what's the idea of non-international armed conflict. The problem that follows from that is that obviously states disagree about in many cases about what counts or what doesn't count, but also that the kind of legal ramifications of some of this stuff means that it gives states incentives to deny that say an armed conflict exists within their borders because then they have more free hand to act. And because the United Nations Security Council in particular reflects kind of the power balance of the world in the mid-20th century, the centrality of the United Nations Security Council in making such determinations, the consequence of them, means that it's obviously a hugely political thing to say whether an armed conflict exists or not. So yes, we have this perhaps clearer criteria and this more universal criteria, but we still have the, the basic problem, which is that like acknowledging the existence of an armed conflict or denying its existence remains kind of a power and political issue. I mean, to take a a recent example, Jack, Russia, permanent member of the Security Council, does not describe itself as being at war with Ukraine. It refers to a special military operation. So what are the implications of that? What are the, the real the real terms implications of that, besides, you know, perhaps wanting to to play it a certain way for the domestic population? What are the sort of more international implications that stem from that? So Russia's use of the term special military operation, it has both internal and external utility, right? So like the special military operation inside Russia is a way of perhaps mobilizing support for this decision to wage war in Ukraine. I think external to Russia in practical terms, everyone recognizes it's a war, right? But in formal diplomatic terms, it's a way of avoiding Russia's obligations under international law 
to not use force, to not conduct armed attacks against uh, its next door neighbour. The kind of importance of such terms is that you can look at them one way to say that all this international law stuff doesn't really matter because all that's going to happen is Russia's going to call it a special military operation and, you know, get around it. And Russia has nuclear weapons and see on the UN, UN Security Council. So no one's really going to stop Russia from doing it. However, like the fact that a country with nuclear weapons and a seat on the UN Security Council is avoiding this language is avoid like consciously avoiding kind of calling what it's doing like a war and armed attack kind of shows you the importance of these terms in international politics. Yeah, I think the one issue we have when talking about international law related to war and armed conflict is that yes, the permanent five members of the UN Security Council can get away with a lot, but many countries can't or at least they have to engage in quite intense diplomacy with states that are on the UN Security Council permanent five members if they don't want to be censured. So one way you can look at how international law works here is that by forcing states to kind of like essentially create these, craft these kind of terms to get around it, what you're showing is that if they were actually open and honest about what they were doing... They, they recognise that there would be penalties for that. But the fact that they're often not open and honest about what they're doing, does that, does that point up some kind of inherent limitation to the system, the international system? I think, yes. Like the, I think the point is, is that, as I see it, international law is something that influences states to the degree to which, one, states actually kind of integrate into like their institutions, their kind of like working practices, things like that, you know, like having lawyers that will say like, this is or is not in violation of international law in their militaries or in their foreign office, things like that. That's kind of like one way that it works. However, I think that the the main thing about international law is that it functions in, in this specific kind of domain one of the problems is punishment. Like, How do you actually punish violations or infractions of international law? And what we see is that, you know, there is a sliding scale. If you are, a, you know, a, a leading world power with nuclear weapons, there's very few tools of perhaps direct punishment that are available. If, on the other hand, you're a smaller state or something like that, then th- there's more tools available to the international community. Also, the degree to which the P5 states are actually on board with punishing states for violations of international law matters. You know, you can look at the, perhaps like the 1990s, when there was much more sort of like, if not unity amongst the P5, sort of like acceptance that there would be international interventions, things like that. It's far greater than there are now, in part because of great power competition. I think like the, ultimately though, like power does matter in international politics. And one of the big things about nuclear weapons, you know, the, we can talk about like the injustices of nuclear weapons in terms of like nuclear deterrence and threats to, you know, harm civilian populations and things like that, or like hold the prospect of nuclear war over everybody else. But one of the central injustices really is that nuclear powers don't have to say sorry <laughs> to anyone. <laughs> this is one of the things is that when you have these kinds of weapons, you have this backstop, which means that 
there's very little kind of ultimate punishment that can be applied to you. Yes, there can be economic sanctions, but you know, if political elites don't respond to those, there's little that can be done. And still thinking about accountability, is the international system better able to deal with that when we are talking about interstate conflict? Because states have hierarchies, they have institutions, they have governments, they have leaders, as opposed to perhaps a rebel organisation, a secessionist group, which, you know, might simply disappear into the background and be much harder to, to hold to account. So if the nature of conflict is shifting more towards the civil war or those messier conflicts, is the international system actually not very well set up to, to deal with accountability in those, in those situations? I'd say that the ability to hold any kind of entity to account, be it like a state, state's armed forces, rebel group, militias, things like that, is firstly kind of about power and jurisdiction. That is, you know, are there courts that can actually hold these groups available, uh, to account? Um, we have things like the International Criminal Court now, like very important, um, which has been holding some people to account for their conduct in some conflicts. However, to say, you know, are we better able to hold states or non-state actors to account? Actually, we're probably, if you if you look at it, it's um, non-state actors are probably held to account more in a sense because they're more open to punishment by states. You know, they like when states fight rebel groups and they capture rebels, like they're able to try them and convict them uh, as justified or unjustified as that may be. I think. The, the issue with such a question is it's, it's very, very wide. Um, accountability for things like crimes of aggression versus war crimes within a conflict. You know, the, the, the idea of holding people to account for waging a war of aggression, that's a very hard thing to do because of state sovereignty, um, sovereign immunity issues, and also because of politics between states, you know, that states don't perhaps want their uh, allies to be held to account i think the in terms of punishing war crimes it really is about the ability to get people who are accused of war crimes in front of some kind of uh, judicial system but then you know when you're talking about things like civil wars sometimes the levels of criminal activity can be so large that they sort of almost beyond traditional judicial systems so I, I just think accountability is a hard thing it's not it's not something we should avoid doing I think it's like a good thing to try and hold people to account for violations of international law international humanitarian law but it is a very very hard problem with significant policy and practical barriers that was Jack McDonald whose new book what is war for is available now there are more details about it and the other titles in the series, on the Bristol University Press website, bristoluniversitypress.co.uk. That's it from me. So for now, thanks for listening, and goodbye.